everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, rather than reviewing one of his written works, I'm reviewing 1985's Stephen King's Silver Bullet, the adaptation of his collaboration with Bernie Wrightson's mix between a short story and a calendar, Cycle of the Werewolf. Before we get into the review itself, I want to share the Stephen King cinematic universe put together by Michael Rothman, Dan Caffrey, Justin Gerber, Randall Colburn, and Dan Flevgor at Consequence of Sound. If you haven't checked this out yet, you should stop listening to this podcast right now and head over to consequenceofsound.net to check it out. Uh, The Consequence of Sound president and editor-in-chief writes, Back in October, Scott Tobias wrote a condemning case against cinematic universes, arguing that the films conform to a specific template, include scenes that are otherwise useless and eventually add up to a confusing viewing. He's not wrong. For all of its past glories, Disney's Marvel Cinematic Universe has become an intricate web of cursed narratives and curious mythologies that will only get more complicated as the waves continue to pummel theaters. But really, the stories beg for that medium, and the universe allows them to get away with an Avengers film that doesn't feel too over or underwrought. The problem is that everyone's doing it. DC Films tipped off theirs in 2013 with Man of Steel. Fox continues to stretch out their X-Men franchise, and Sony's doing something with Spider-Man, we think. The difference lies in execution. Whereas Marvel has spent the better half of a decade, or even maybe more, planning theirs, the others seem to have juggled their own licenses around because, well, that's what's expected of comic book movies these days, right? Hell, even Star Wars is getting in on the fun. What with all the spin-off films and TV shows? Behold! The Stephen King Cinematic Universe. That's why we thought it'd be interesting to flirt with Stephen King. In the past few months, development for Josh Boone's adaptation of The Stand has picked up speed over at Warner Brothers, shifting from a three-hour film to a four-part event starring Matthew McConaughey as Randall Flagg. That's big news for fans of the main demigod, but it's also perilous. This is a chance to aptly capture King's work and impress it upon a younger generation who might be looking for something to grasp and obsess over amidst a post-Hunger Games and post-Potter culture. But what a canon of work to enjoy. So far, King has published over 55 novels and nearly 200 short stories, with a great majority of them linked together. His magnum opus, The Dark Tower, spans seven novels with correlating comic books, short stories, and one novella tossed in for added weight. It's a very complicated and incredibly diverse culture King has devised, which is why a proper film or television adaptation of the saga has yet to get off the ground despite repeated attempts by J.J. Abrams and Ron Howard. For this installment of the producer's chair, we opted to do all the legwork for the studios and pieced together a proper cinematic universe of King's bibliography, all based around Boone's upcoming production of The Stand. We parsed out the release dates, cast its characters, and targeted 19 essential films and or television properties that would do justice to the man's reign in modern literature. Sadly, this probably won't happen, but this was far more enjoyable than it was taxing. So come, come, Kamala, and enjoy the track. Um, this article then goes on to imagine 19 films and TV projects that starts with The Stand and concludes with the final installment of The Dark Tower. Uh, the connective tissue of this imagined cinematic universe is, of course, Randall Flagg, who is the Stephen King equivalent to Marvel's Nick Fury. 
The article then goes on to fan cast each of the characters, provides soundtrack options, discusses what they would change from the book to the film, and more. If you're a Stephen King fan, and you probably are seeing as how you're listening to something called the Stephen King cast, do yourself a favor and check it out at consequenceofsound.net. Now I want to get just very briefly into some listener mail because some has built up um, and I just want to share what some people have written. So um, Sue just gives her own thoughts on Revival and if you haven't listened to the review of Revival, if you haven't read Revival, you might want to skip this part, um, read Revival, and then get back here. Sue writes, Revival is the latest offering from horror meister extraordinary bar none Stephen King. While not groundbreaking, the novel is as smooth as pudding, going down easy, as expected of King's style of writing. The tale of a first-person recollection by Jamie Morton, a second-rate, drug-addicted career rock and roll rhythm guitar player, and his seeming coincidental run-ins with his childhood mentor-turned-lab-rat recruiter named Charles Jacobs, a fervent small-town minister who, after tragedy strikes, renounces his faith and charts new career courses as a traveling carnival huckster, itinerant faith healer and mad scientist. Jacobs, like a modern-day Nicholas Tesla, loves playing and experimenting with electricity. But his hobby inevitably becomes an obsession when he taps into a force he discovers and calls special electricity. With this extraordinary new energy, he paints portraits in lightning and heals the affirmed in old-time religious revivals held under a big-top tent. Praise the Lord and pass the money buckets. But his miraculous cure produces serious side effects, and his intent is not completely altruistic, as any Stephen King fan will expect. Jacob's true purpose is much more nefarious, as he connives Jamie to help him achieve his goal of getting a glimpse of the other side of the canvas flap. King flavors his novel with his trademarks of memorable, well-developed characters, healthy doses of social commentary, dashes of science gone wild, with pinches of humor whipped into an entertaining sci-fi horror treat. Not a gourmet dinner, but a tasty dessert for any reader's literary taste buds. Sue, thank you for um, a really well-written review and your thoughts on on the task. I had... um, written back to Sue in an email, but one thing that I loved that she pointed out was the Nikola Tesla uh, comparison. I didn't even think of that. And now that she has said that, I want to kind of go back and reread Revival again, even though I've just read it and I have every single other Stephen King book that I have to read for the podcast. Um, But I want to reread it thinking of Tesla and the whole mythology of Tesla because I think that, I love that. I, I think that that's just such a great connection. Um, and so Sue, I don't thank you for writing in and please feel free to do so, um, again, uh, you know, feel free to share your, uh, you know, what Stephen King means to you, uh, what your first entry into the world of Stephen King was, just feel free and thanks for writing in. And then Craig writes, um, he, 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 uh, he nails it dead on. He, he said, your intelligent insights and comments, um, you know, see revival. We're spot on. Dot dot dot. English major, were you? If I might, I have a few questions that have always bugged me about art and literature, the creative process, and the creator's intentions. Do you think that SK, for example, sat down to a blank computer screen and planned out all the points that you mentioned before his first keystroke? Or do you think his work was mostly unplanned, a stroke of luck, experience, or unconscious decision making? 
Do you think he would agree with you on your interpretation should you be fortunate enough to discuss them over lunch together? I ask because I'm a published author and journalism major with an English minor and a master's degree in instructional design. I was a research writer for NBC TV in Burbank for five years, way back in the mid-80s, and I paint. I love the creative process, that magic that Paul McCartney talks about when you're in another space-time writing-slash-painting when the ideas just flow almost automatically. The end product is something from within me, a physical manifestation from my abstract life experiences and psyche. Picasso was quoted as saying, paraphrased, I just paint. It's up to the critics to decipher what it means. And when music critics ask Mick Jagger what the lyrics to Paint It Black mean, he shot, it means to paint it effing black. When I was in college, we read Huckleberry Finn or some such quaint, sorry, some such twain classic, and the stereotypical egg-headed literature professor with a pointed goatee and elbow-parched corduroy jacket rambled on and on and on about twain symbolism. The Mississippi River was the flow of life, etc. Well, it really started to piss me off, and I finally raised my hand and asked him how he knew what Sam Clemens was writing about. Was he at Twain's desk as he was creating the story? I'm a Twain freak as you are, SK, and therefore had studied his background of being an old newspaper man. Maybe, I commented snidely, he just wrote it to make a buck. I think the prof was relieved the bell rang, class dismissed. I also took an art appreciation class where the instructor drilled in our heads all semester that art was in the eye of the beholder. That is the way that an interpretation should be. And then there's the issue of how much drug slash booze play in bringing out the final product, say on a Jackson Pollock canvas, a Led Zeppelin LP, or Stephen King's early work fueled by ounces of Coke and gallons of beer. Sorry this is so long, you probably want to get back to reading King's stuff, but these questions have always chaffed me, and you seem like a person of wisdom who might provide a valid answer. Please keep the transcripts coming, and best of luck on your terrific podcast. Um, so, Craig, uh, thank you so much for writing in. This is a great email. Uh, it's deep. This is probably the deepest one that that um, I've gotten yet. And I, you know, so the, the, fir to the first point, is about the uh, Stephen King's creative process and how he sits down. It's been about three years or so since I read On Writing, and I've only read it once, and I don't even own it. Shame on me. Uh, but On Writing is an incredible piece. It's a great glimpse into the, the, the mind of Stephen King, and it's Stephen King talking about writing, what writing means to him, what the process means to him, what writing is... Uh, he goes into a lot of detail, and one of the what I remember distinctly is he discusses closed door and open door writing. So there's a period where he's writing closed door, and that's simply the relationship that he has with the story, where he works everything out, and the story only belongs to him. And then when he opens the door and he gives it to someone, all of a sudden the story then is a shared experience. And I'm not sure, but I think that he works out all of that, most of it, during the closed-door writing process. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I honestly don't remember how much he plans out. I think anecdotally, just from my recollection of reading Stephen King interviews, he's very character-driven. He comes up with a what-if scenario. He's very character-driven. The characters dictate where the story goes as he explores this what-if situation, but I don't think that he ever really has much of an end in mind. 
I think that as he writes along the way, it starts to come up. And I think that – I think, I think, um, you know, Craig, you, you referred to me um, – very uh, complimentary as a wise person. I don't know if I would go that far. Uh, so, but I think that Stephen King, during his writing process, as he is writing these characters, explore their journeys, he he starts to bring up life events and deep meanings of universal theme, and he begins an exploration narratively. Uh, and statements on thematic aspects of life as he goes, and then, of course, he would revise it. Again, this is all just me pulling out somewhere, not necessarily from any credible source. Um, you know, if, if I was a, a better reviewer, I would get the answer from on writing and share it with you, but like I said, I don't have it. Um, and if anyone does have the answer, if there is a definitive answer out there, just write in. Um, I will eventually get around to rereading on writing again, um, and I'll be specific, specifically be looking for, for that particular answer. But the rest of this email is just so good because anytime we're talking about the creative process, I think that we're all better for it. Um, I think that all of us listening to this podcast in one way or another probably are creative types. I mean, even if the, the creation part is simply imagining what Stephen King or uh, writers are writing because that visualization is indicative of a creative mind uh, so when you know we talk about just the the, the creative output and uh, you know how it's just automatically coming out I, I just I love this the end product is something from within me a physical manifestation from my abstract life experience and psyche such a good way of putting it um so craig uh just thanks for writing in feel free please actually don't feel free i'm begging you please write in again i think that we're better off um with your thoughts so uh so please when you get an opportunity uh chime in on on some more thoughts about the creative process uh some more thoughts about stephen king's works um revival uh, what or, or whatever whatever you want to whatever what you want to talk about um I'll, I'll read your your thoughts on air all right everyone i just wanted to get a couple emails out of the way um and with that done i want to dive right back into the world of werewolves in small town maine last week we talked about cycle of the werewolf this week i will be discussing uh stephen king's silver bullet now, before I get into the analysis, I think that it's important that I read from Wikipedia some notes about the production itself. Filming began in October 1984 and took about two and a half months to complete, finishing shortly before Christmas. In the novella, the werewolf was said to snarl in nearly human words and the werewolf was supposed to speak in the original screenplay, although this was eliminated after a rewrite. Gary Busey felt a certain kinship with the Uncle Red character and was allowed to ad-lib all of his lines in certain takes of each scene in which he appeared. Although he read the lines as scripted in most of the takes, Stephen King and Daniel Tyus liked the ad-lib scenes better and decided to include most of Busey's ad-lib scenes in the final cut of the film. King asked that the werewolf be ambiguous, plain, and hard to see in contrast to the hulking monsters seen in other werewolf films and books in the early to mid-1980s, with the end result being a creature which looked more like a black bear than anything else and did not really have any identifying characteristics. 
After seeing Carlo Rambaldi's design per King's request, producer Dino De Laurentiis was very unhappy and demanded a change, which both King and Rambaldi refused. Eventually, pre-production fell behind schedule and director Don uh, Coscarelli opted to, s- to start filming the non-werewolf scenes without knowing what would happen with the werewolf suit. After completing the non-werewolf scenes and not having any clear picture about what would happen with the film, Casarelli uh, resigned as director and was replaced with Attias. When pressured to either cancel the film or accept the design, De Laurentiis relented and allowed filming to continue with Rambaldi's werewolf suit. A modern dance hire was da- dance actor was hired to perform the stunts inside the suit, but De Laurentiis was also unhappy with his performance and demanded a change. As a result, Everett McGill, who played Reverend Lester Lowe in human form, wound up acting out most of the scenes in the werewolf suit and was credited with a dual role. So, uh, when watching the movie, Stephen King's silver bullet pops up on screen, followed by an establishing shot of the moon. What first starts out as creepy music turns into a wistful lullaby, and it's at that moment where I start to get a sinking feeling because the music just seems very, 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 very out of place. The credits roll, and I notice that two Millennium uh, alums pop up in the credits, Terry O'Quinn and Bill Smitrovitz. Uh, what I mean by Millennium is the Fox television show that was created by Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files that starred Lance Hendrickson. And if you haven't seen that, it, I don't know if it's on Netflix or not, but it's a great show. I really, really enjoyed it. There are some really creepy images in there that I uh, that still stick with me. So Millennium, go check it out. Terry O'Quinn, of course, famous uh, for his role of John Locke in Lost, in which he won an Emmy, and Bill Smitrovich, famous for his work as the dad, his name escapes me off the top of my head, from the, I don't know if it was late 80s, early 90s, early 90s television show Life Goes On. A voiceover introduces us to the full moon and the town's nightmare. The narration gives it a fairy tale, storybook-like quality that matches that wistful kind of music that was playing. And right away, we get our first werewolf kill. Uh, it doesn't take place in the January snowstorm as it did in Cycle of the Werewolf, but instead, as the narrator tells us, in the spring of 1976, to be exact. The railroad operator first discovers werewolf tracks in the dirt, followed by an attack that literally sends his head spinning. It's actually such an over-the-top, gory decapitation that it took me by surprise, and I was shocked by how much I enjoyed it. A wolf's howl fills the night, and the townspeople look up in fright and unease. And then we cut back to the railroad operator's severed head. Now, whoever did the effects for this did a phenomenal job. You know, the flies are crawling all over his face. It's just a very, it's a, it's a nice touch that, that really adds texture to the, the horror of the scene itself. The movie then, one by one, introduces us to our characters. Uh, Jane, our narrator, Reverend Lester Lowe, played by Big Ed Hurley himself, Everett McGill, and Corey Haim, playing Marty Koslaw. Poor Jane is first tormented with a small snake, then falls in the mud. And this is our first of a few very, very 80s movies moments that just really puts it in this particular decade. And it has a distinct feeling of a cheesy 80s movie that I don't find in many of Stephen King's other adaptations that I find very, very prevalent here within this movie. 
Jane storms off and peeps on a man and wife arguing over the parentage of the wife's bun in the oven. Then we get some exposition about Uncle Red, the chronic drunk uncle who's getting another divorce. The conversation itself is a little ham-fisted, enough to know that it's the hand of the screenwriter, but masked enough through the sibling rivalry between the two kids, so it, it, it sort of works. One thing that King does well is he reveals Marty's character traits by sneaking into Jane's room and dropping off the cash to replace the torn pantyhose in the old snake-in-the-mud trick back in the park. It's a good touch on his part, and rather than having Jane, our narrator, describe how good Marty is, we actually see how good Marty is. I, I feel as though the character is much more realized here than, than he is in his short story counterpart. Rain swells outside, and the woman who had been fighting with her husband over the baby... Wow, we're going there. The pregnant woman's about to commit suicide, despite her jilted jerk husband. But she doesn't get the chance because the werewolf bursts through the window after climbing the trellis, no less, and rips her apart. It's actually pretty brutal, the attack itself. The quick shots we see of the werewolf, they're pretty effective when they don't show the, the full-on body. And then we're introduced to Sheriff John Locke, the always charismatic Terry O'Quinn who will establish his niche in the horror genre with 1987's The Stepfather two years from now. In the bar, life goes on. Bill Smitrovich causes trouble, but is put in his place with a bat named Peacemaker. It's such a cool little touch, having that bat, uh, which is owned by the bartender. And honestly, when I think of this movie, I don't think of Corey Haim's Silver Bullet. I don't think of Gary Busey. I think of the werewolf holding the peacemaker and beating people to death with it, which holds the trophy for the most inventive death by werewolf attack of all time. We then meet Tammy, a character not in the book, and possible love interest for, for young Corey Haim. But as soon as we meet her, we, we never really see her again, so I think that there, there might, in another universe, this character would have been beefed up. Uh, Corey Haim, by the way, his silver bullet finds out... Uh, we find out runs on gas which is such i'm going to talk about i'm going to talk about the wheelchair i'm going to talk about the use of the wheelchair in a little bit but it's just such a strange weird quirky little touch we're also introduced to tammy's father during this scene the alcoholic bigot who wants all cripples to burn because they're all on welfare now this guy is such an identifiable Stephen King character who is so deep-seatedly prejudiced and of low character. But don't worry everyone, he gets what's coming to him. Our werewolf gets revenge for all of our wheelchair-bound and welfare recipients in the world by taking this guy out in the, in the greenhouse. And I have not yet mentioned our lovable Uncle Red, played by Gary Busey, uh, who, I, I don't know if he's acting? You know, this guy is so inextricably linked with his real-life persona. So when he plays an off-the-wall character, it feels less of a movie and more of a documentary. But keep in mind, this is incredible casting. By this point, Gary Busey is an Academy Award-nominated actor for 1978 uh, movie The Buddy Holly Story. And Busey is a highlight to the movie. Like I mentioned above, his acting is very naturalistic. And as I referenced earlier he decided to ad-lib most of his lines because he was so much in love with this particular character. And I think that it shows. He, he elevates a lot of the scenes. And I enjoy watching him because he has an energy that I, I think a lot of the other characters are missing. Back in the bar, 
Bill Smitrovich keeps up his anti-police diatribe. What interrupts a soon-to-be fight is a three-piece suit-clad mustachioed businessman looking for his son at the bar because apparently his middle school child was a regular there, and if anyone would know where he is, it's his beer buddies. At the boys' funeral, Smitrovich assembles the bar together to go hunt down the killer, and Terry O'Quinn tries to shut it down. Terry O'Quinn is so good in this movie. Every time he's on screen, like he like Gary Busey does, he just elevates the material and almost makes me forget that all King is doing with this scene is just ripping off Jaws. O'Quinn plays the role of Chief Brody. Smitrovich is the recklessness of the mayor and the townspeople all rolled together in one. And Brady's father, the boy's father, even interrupts the mob a la Alex Kittner's mother. Rather than saying, my son is dead to the sheriff, he says, my son was torn to pieces. Everett McGill tries to stop the mob, not unlike Brody and Hooper together, and the mob itself meets Ben Gardner's end. Now, the mob scene itself, the whole scene, uh, the scene starting with the bar and then going off into the woods, while it might be very reminiscent of Jaws, it's still very effective, and it's my favorite part of the movie. Deep in the dark woods, the, the, the townspeople are surrounded by thick fog, the sounds of the night woods are resonant. There's an air of both menace and humor, with the bar patron getting his leg caught in the bear trap not once but twice, and the idiots stumbling over each other the entire time. And when in the pool of fog, the vigilantes realize that the beast is in there with them, and it's a creepy scene, not knowing who's next. The men are picked off one by one, and includes the great gag of the werewolf beating the bartender to death with the peacemaker baseball bat, like I mentioned before. Just as in the story, we have a werewolf in the church nightmare and Marty lighting off fireworks on the full moon. Except this time he's further away from home due to his new and improved silver bullet wheelchair go-kart hybrid. The distant shot of the fireworks going off over the water at night is one of the movie's only strong visuals. Jane goes on a bumbling side quest soon after to discover the identity of the werewolf in a goofy sequence in which she comes up with excuses to gaze into the eyes of the townsfolk. The scene even includes a jump scare from a mouse. From a mouse? Yes. From a mouse. And then one-eyed Everett McGill enters the garage. The scene should be filled with palpable menace, a young girl trapped, alone in a dark, confined area with a one-eyed werewolf, but it just falls flat. First of all, the decision to have the adult character narrate the story diffuses any tension, as we know nothing bad is going to come to her. Even without it, it's just something about the filming of this movie. It's just, it's thin. Something about it's thin. And then Marty and the Reverend have their second showdown on the bridge, except this time, and I'm not joking, they have a high-speed car chase down the road. There are aspects of this movie that are insane, that no doubt made Roger Ebert right. That this is either the worst movie ever made from a Stephen King story or the funniest. Eber admitted that he thought that the film was a parody of the novella and King's work in general. Um, and then, then in the same scene, Everett McGill goes full evil while in the covered bridge. And it's a great performance. McGill is desperate. He's unshaving. He's unwilling, I'm sorry, he's willing to do anything to keep his secret safe. The character comes equipped with a wonderful conflict. He hates himself for the atrocities committed as a werewolf, but he can't bring himself to kill himself due to his religion. And his insanity grows from it. McGill, like Busey, O'Quinn, and Smitrovich, are all incredible actors whose presence on the screen result with glimmers of what could have been, 
if this movie was in the hands of another director. I could watch two hours of Terry O'Quinn walking around the church with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, for instance. The guy is that good. And because I love this actor so much, it's painful to watch him enter the garage knowing he's walking to his doom. And then McGill, again, uses the Peacemaker to beat someone to death. And I, you know, any issue that I have with this movie, I absolutely love the fact that it includes a murderous werewolf that kills not necessarily animalistically, but with props. And it's fitting that we had a guy watching the WWF earlier. And for those of you who are too young to know, the WWF is what used to, it's what the WWE used to be called. The World Wrestling Federation, which is now World Wrestling Entertainment. So it's fitting that we had a character watching the WWF because basically the werewolf in its final attack goes after Gary Busey like he's in a wrestling ring. Not, I don't know, using his claws or his teeth, but instead decides to throw him into the armoire, then the mirror, then over the couch. The only thing that's missing here is Jesse the Body Ventura as color commentator and Mean Gene Okerlund waiting in the wings for an interview. All in all... This movie, this movie, it just has this this strange lifetime movie feel to it. It has a lot of great elements that just never fully work. You know, whether it's the cinematography, the music, the direction, or a mix of all three, I don't know. I don't think it's the script, which if you think about it, works on paper. It has inventive kills, quirky townsfolk, a well-realized small town. If this script was beefed up as a novel and included the Bernie Wrightson paintings from Cycle of the Werewolf, this could be a classic King novel. In the hands of another director, cinematographer, and musician, this could have been a classic King movie. Either option could have been Stephen King's stamp on the werewolf genre. I feel like both the Cycle of the Werewolf and Stephen King's Silver Bullet never live up to their potential. And if you listen to my review of Cycle of the Werewolf last week, you'll know that I believe the strength lies within Bernie Wrightson's masterful illustrations. This movie is just, I don't know, it's just there. The direction never brings out memorable performances from its actors. The blocking of the scenes are just generic. The whole movie seems paint by numbers. It's just kind of there. With that said, the fact that the movie is named after not the method of the wolf's demise, but Corey Haim's completely improbable method of transportation is so bizarre. It's such a weird touch, such a completely 80s choice, and the scene of Corey Haim speeding down the road with the chipper synth music, you know, it looks like it's not from just a different movie, but it's also so quintessentially 80s it almost comes across as a self-parody. I would be less surprised to see this on Adult Swim at 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, this is a movie that comes complete with an inspirational vocal theme song. And then it ends with a completely unironic exchange of I love you's between brother and sister with the narrator saying, I love you, uh, once more for good effects, as if the movie was never about a werewolf, but always about the relationship between the brother and sister. Maybe King thought it was, or maybe the director thought it was, but you can say it all you want, but it's not. And nothing against performances, but that's not the the heart of the movie. I think that's supposed to be, but it, it never really works for me. I think Jeepers Creepers does a really good job with a brother and sister focus, and that's that's a that's an aspect of horror movies that we don't see too much. In a lot of your standard horror movies, we see the the two love interests, uh, but we don't really see that much 
brother and sister relationships being at the heart. And I know that Jeepers Creepers, I think, did a phenomenal job with the brother-sister being the at the forefront of the movie and being the, the two main characters here. Uh, Corey, whether maybe it's just the actors, I don't know. Uh, or it's just the, the, the part that was written for them. But there are great characters in this movie that could have been beefed up more. Uh, all the actors that, that I had referenced earlier, and they focused on the weaker links. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. So I just want to get to Cycle of the Werewolf versus Stephen King's Silver Bullet and, and wrap up here. So Uncle Red versus Uncle Al. Uh, Uncle Red is our uh, movie uncle, and Uncle Al is our book uncle. I'm going to go with Gary Busey all the way because it's Gary Busey. The, the guy is insane absolutely insane who has moments of ad lib where he makes no sense whatsoever like the following holy jumped up ball headed jesus palomina so i'm team busey uh, i i've talked enough about how i think the the movie would just be better if it focused on him if it focused on terry o'quinn if it focused on bill smitrovich if it focused on everett mcgill more i i think that there's an alternate reality where the focus was on the gary busey character who is a screw-up in life, and he's the focus, and he learns to overcome his issues with the love of his nephew, and Corey Haim would be the supporting character. It would just flip, and I think that a slight flip like that would do wonders for this, this particular story. So, point Stephen King's silver bullet. Number two, Reverend Lowe. We have Reverend Lowe in the... the the, the short story. I don't know. I don't want to call it a short story because it's not really a short story. It's a series of just kind of chapters, just just descriptions of a particular, just descriptions of attacks that just get kind of thrown together. Because if you listened to last week, it was originally designed as a calendar to really celebrate and promote Bernie Wrightson's art. And Stephen King found that he wasn't having enough room to finish his his writing piece, so they expanded it into this quasi-short story, quasi-vignette, series of vignettes, quasi-calendar. So I don't know what to call it. Just the, the, I'm going to call it either the book or the short story, but in the book short story calendar thing that they published under Cycle of the Werewolf, you know, there's Reverend Lowe, and then here we have Everett McGill, and I, I love Everett McGill's performance, especially in the 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 bridge sequence where he's stalking Corey Haim, and he, like I said, he is unshaven at that point, and he's manic, and well, not manic, but maniacal, and he's just dangerous. And as I mentioned earlier, he has that conflict about hating himself, but not wanting to to commit suicide because of his religion so the hypocrisy there is just it's wonderful and it, it just it makes for a, a good villain now we have marty you know what marty i don't think that the character is acted very well by cory Haim, but this is an iconic cory Haim role and if you youtube silver bullet Stephen King's Silver Bullet, you're going, the first thing that's going to pop up is the Corey Haim on the Silver Bullet riding down the road with the, you know, synth music playing. 
it, it's it's insane. So I'm I have to go. I ha- because this movie includes this Gonzo wheelchair that runs on gas, and then the the, the Mach two version, which could never be allowed on the road. I, I I have to I have to go with the movie. And then four we have the werewolf attacks. The werewolf attacks in the book they're well written. Uh, at times they're hokey. February, I'm looking at you, and they're memorable only because of Bernie Wrightson. But like I said earlier, this movie, this movie includes werewolf death by baseball bat. So I have to go with Stephen King's Silver Bullet on this. So guys, anything that I I say negatively about this book, uh, this movie, I'm going with this movie in the head to head. So ultimately, if you were to ask me what I like better, Cycle of the Werewolf or Stephen King's Silver Bullet. I'm going to go with Stephen King's Silver Bullet, and that really surprises me. I did not necessarily expect to say that, but I, like I said, I think that this comes closer to being the story that Stephen King wanted to tell. First of all, it has a definitive beginning, middle, and end, where like I said, with Cycle of the Werewolf, it's disjointed. It's a series of vignettes that only towards the end starts to take some semblance of a actual story with a reoccurring character and a conclusion. Here, you know, we have the story of Marty. Whether whether I want the story to be about Marty is irrelevant. We have the story of Marty, and there are moments where I see what this movie could have been, and I, I just wish that it was a little bit better. I wish that it didn't feel as, as hokey as it did, and I completely understand why Roger Ebert wrote what he did. But with that said, for the Peacemaker... Baseball bat used by the werewolf. And for the ridiculousness of the silver bullet and the so out of place, so quintessentially 80s musical score, I have to go with Stephen King's silver bullet. So that's all I've got for this week, guys. If you haven't done so already, check the movie out because it's an experience. It's not necessarily a good experience, but I think that everyone still should check it out. I hope that one day Stephen King gets around to writing the werewolf story that his definitive werewolf story, maybe this is it, or maybe his definitive werewolf story was in the talisman. I don't know. I I just, I feel, oh my God. And and the scene with them in the woods, with the fog, that to me, that, that could have been the centerpiece for a great movie. And I just think that this 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 was close. It could have done it. It could have been a really, really good movie. But it's not. It's not. So anyway, guys, thanks for sticking around. Uh, so next week, we are going to be heading from this weird book, short story, calendar, werewolf thing. And heading into the collaboration with Peter Straub that resulted with the incredible fantasy epic the talisman which i'll be reviewing next week and when i drop the episode for the talisman i will also be releasing a bonus episode that explores the connections between the talisman and stephen king's the dark tower so stay tuned for that and after that we will be exploring stephen king's second collection of short stories with skeleton crew which includes as you probably know the most famous story within that is The Mist, which was adapted into a movie in 2007 from 
the Walking Dead producer, Frank Darabont, director of The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. So next week, I will be reviewing a handful of stories in Skeleton Crew, and I will definitely be focusing a lot of my attention on The Mist. The following week, I will be reviewing Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Mist as well. So we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at the stories and a couple weeks being stuck in the mist and then we'll move on from there so everyone if you haven't done so already feel free to just write in your thoughts at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com you can follow me on twitter on instagram on pinterest on facebook and you know feel free to to reach out in any of those areas of social media and if you haven't done so already feel free to uh, write a review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes because the more subscriptions and reviews that I get, the, uh, the higher on the iTunes list it goes. So thanks everyone one way or another for, for writing in, for listening, and for, for coming back. Uh, at this point, I have over 30 countries listening to this podcast, which is mind-blowing to me. So everyone, just thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I will see you here again, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King Cat. Here I am, alone again, and all I ask is for a wish come true, I never thought it would happen, till you came in, and my hopes were in.